welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. On today's show, we've got a review of Warren Beatty's screwball comedy about Howard Hughes? Rules don't apply. Followed by a recap of week two of award season for the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League. Then in special features, we'll bring you a double feature with a special war crimes review of Robert Altman's 1971 film starring Warren Beatty and Julie Christie, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Midnight Warriors, we have a very special announcement. We are partnering with Tulsa's local independent theater, Circle Cinema, on a special two-night-only event screening of Westworld, the 1973 film starring Yul Brynner and a host of other stars. It's a, uh, it, it is a sci-fi Western. Um, and this is, this is a film that Hunter's actually recommended on the show before. Um, kind of, he has a very soft spot for it. When, when we were approached to, uh, by circle cinema to kind of partner up and, and do this, I can't explain how excited Hunter was. And this may be your only chance to see the movie because from what I can tell, you can't get it from a library. Yeah. So I, I checked and, and this is like for, for the record, uh, this, this version, the film is still in my, uh, is still in my war crimes list. And so I recently attempted to check it out from Tulsa County library and they have apparently two editions. One has, um, I believe 10 holds on it. The other one, 31 so, uh, and those are, those are DVDs. Uh, so not even, not even going to be the best, uh, best presentation quality. You should really come out to this. This is going to be a whole lot of fun. Uh, we are introducing both evenings. Uh, it is Friday, January 13th at 10 PM and, and Saturday, January 14th at 10 PM. So, uh, we will kind of introduce the, the film beforehand yeah, I'm 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 stoked about this. This is going to be a whole lot of fun. And by we, do you mean you and Hunter? I mean me and Hunter. Yes, that is that is correct. So Jake, obviously being in in Louisiana, uh, will not be able to join us. But the wayward Hunter Cates um, will be there, and that'll be a delight. And, and look, if there's enough public demand, there are roads that lead to Oklahoma. I, I can make my <laughs> way up there. I'm not saying it won't happen. It's just not in plans right now. He's he's just saying he's just saying you know make your make your petitions, and then Jake will show up. As long as nothing causes me to cease all motor functions, I, I, I might be able to make it up there. But <laughs> I just don't. I don't want to make any promises I can't keep. Yeah, and I guess I guess we should address this is so this movie was directed by Michael Crichton based on a book by Michael Crichton, um, and this which which is the uh, basis for the HBO series that just wrapped up Westworld, um, and it, they're very different from what I understand. Like I said, I, I still haven't seen uh, the original film, but the movie seems to be much more interested in, you know, entertainment. It is a, it is a genre picture starring Yul Brynner. It is a sci-fi Western starring Yul Brynner. Why are you laughing? It sounds amazing, Chris. No, it does sound amazing, but it's like, it's the type of thing where it's like, I just, I can't believe it. It exists. And it's a, it is a, it is a glorious, like I am as giddy with anticipation as Hunter is to uh, present this. I'm giddy with anticipation to see it for the first time. I am. Um, too. I am, too. I'm, I'm hoping I can find it and won't have to just resort to to going to eBay to get it. I tried to get the book to give as a gift, uh-huh. the paperback, and all I could find was an old, like the out of print version on Amazon for mm-hmm. four to five hundred bucks used. Wow. Not That's joking. insane. Yeah. There's there's not there's not even like can you get it in like ebook form? 
possibly. I might be able to do that. I didn't think about that. But I, I think it's just a, in, in such high demand right now that yeah. you're not going to be able to get any any access to this unless you're kind of lucky. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense. I'm honestly, I'm surprised that no one attempted to pick up the rights to this for streaming. Um, when, when HBO announced the show, right. Um, because I, I was looking online and it's like, there's not a lot of places you can't rent it in all the usual places either. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Seriously though, guys come on out. Um, I will leave, I'll put a link to the event, um, on the Facebook event in the show notes, um, from there you can, uh, get a link to buy tickets to either night and, uh, yeah, we'll check our, you know, check our Facebook, check our Twitter. Uh, we, we may have some updates, uh, in the, the future on the event. We'll keep you posted. Um, tickets are on sale now and we really hope to see you out there. In other news, Rogue One, the first installment in what Disney hopes to be an endless Star Wars anthology series is coming out this week. So we're reviewing A film no one has seen, starring a guy who's set to play Han Solo in his own anthology film. And I assume we mean Warren Beatty. Yeah, Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty is playing Han Solo in the Han Solo film, right? Uh, I I would actually really see that, but I don't know who they would cast as Chewbacca. (laughs) Uh, I I think Alden Ehrenreich would be a great Chewbacca. Could they get him in there? Alden Alden Ehrenreich, (laughs) you know, I think he could pull it off. Um, Uh, Does that that mean Chewbacca's, uh, he's lost a little height, though? Oh, would that it were so simple. <laughs> how's, so how's that for a thinly veiled segue? We know you didn't see rules don't apply. We know you don't plan to see rules don't apply. But stick with us, because this movie is weird, but entertaining. And hopefully our review will be too. Our review of rules don't apply is coming up now. Billionaire, goddammit, not millionaire. And what the hell happened to the close-up of me in the cockpit? Will film? Remember, any driver who tries any hanky-panky with a contract actress is fired. Hi, I'm, I'm Frank. Hi. Two weeks in Los Angeles, and you're working for Howard Hughes. No harm having high hopes, ma'am. And what church do you go to, Frank? First Methodist in Fresno. I forgive you. <laughs> She's kidding. We're Baptists. You do know why Baptists think sex is bad, don't you? Because it might lead to dancing. When is Frank's fiance coming to town? She believes that once you've been intimate in the eyes of God, you're committed to that person for the rest of your life. I agree with Sarah. Well, that's, I mean, that's a little, I'm not legally married. Mr. Hughes, I'd like to thank you for the chance to become a star. You've never had a drink in your life? I don't drink. Maybe I'm not the right girl for this. A movie actress should have big bosoms and be sexy. I mean, in this town, aren't those the rules? You're an exception. The rules don't apply to you. One day I told my friend I was terribly blue. Judging by the abhorrent box office returns for Rules Don't Apply, I assume none of our listeners have seen this film, and I'm sure there are even a number of Midnight Warriors who haven't even heard of it. So let me say this before we begin. If you're the type of person who skips reviews for films you haven't seen yet, I'd encourage you to stick around for this one, because let's be honest, you weren't going to see this movie anyway, and even if you saw the trailer, I bet you couldn't explain the plot to me. I saw the movie, and I can't even explain the plot to you. Well, allow me to try. Everyone knows Howard Hughes was an eccentric billionaire who drilled for oil, directed moving pictures, and crashed aeroplanes. Most assume those numerous plane crashes over the course of his life led to some mental impairments in his twilight years. What this film presupposes is, maybe he was faking it? The plot of Rules Don't Apply is many things and nothing at all. Sometimes it tries to be a love story between the aspiring actress Marla Mabry and her determined driver, Frank Forbes, 
and the two are played quite charmingly by Lily Collins and Alton Ehrenreich. But other times, the rules don't apply to rules don't apply, as the film drops the whole Marla Frank story almost completely to spend a substantial amount of time focusing on how not-so-crazy its iteration of Howard Hughes is. Or at least until it explores his very frequent daddy issues? The man is obsessed with birth control DNA and any business partner who he perceives as even partially paternal. This movie is a massive mess, and yet I kind of sort of loved it. Not because it's taking chances or breaking the rules, but because it's a cinematic oddity. I have absolutely no idea who this film's intended audience is. So Jake, I'm curious. Who on earth was this motion picture made for? And furthermore, on a scale of 1 to 10, how many individuals, including yourself, attended your screening of Rules Don't Apply? Uh, including myself? Including yourself. One. <laughs> One. It was... a. Uh, I, but I did arrange a private screening, and by that I mean I walked up unexpectedly to a movie theater and bought a ticket. I think that's um, how you do a, a private screening of Rules Don't Apply. So, Jake, the sum total of your your theater and my theater combined, two people. Oh, you had a private screening as well. I, I did as well, and I almost sent it to you, but I knew you hadn't seen it yet, so I didn't want to. <laughs> I didn't want to like freak you out. But uh, yeah, no one, no one saw this movie. Well, I knew it was going to be. I knew it was going to be rough to see when it had been out like two weeks. And I was like, I'll just go see it on like Wednesday when my schedule works out. And I looked, and it was like, oh, only screening is two thirty during the day. Mm-hmm. So I grabbed the last screening on Monday, which was at five oh five, which isn't good either and i was yeah. the only only person in it yeah i uh i i looked this morning and so we're recording the weekend before uh this episode goes up and it looks like it's only playing in one theater in tulsa um now and it's it's uh the warren which is a, a fairly nice theater but um yeah it's i i feel like this movie is going to be a, like a x versus sever sort of situation where um it's out of theaters as almost as soon as it's in them and then very soon after on dvd or you know rental etc so so one one thing that happened funny during my screening uh the projector went like i got up and went to the bathroom real quick and i came back and then they were doing marla mayberry's screen test Uh and just the projector went like the lamp went off or something and it was completely dark and i thought Maybe they peeked in and said, nobody's seeing this movie. I'm going to have to find somebody and explain to them that I'm seeing rules don't apply. (laughs) That I actually bought a ticket for it, and I do need the film to continue because I'm reviewing it. And if I start talking to the manager, am I going to be like, I'm seeing rules don't apply? And he's like, here's your refund. Here you go. It's fine. Just (laughs) like you're not the first one. Uh, So I've missed a little bit of her screen test. So I don't know if she actually wore a bathing suit or not. I have no clue. She she did not wear the bathing suit. Um, she was. I mean, it was good. It, this is a a charming movie at times. But back to my original question: Who do you think this movie is made for? Um, Warren Beatty. I, I mean, that is that is the most feasible. Um, I feel like it wasn't made for the audience. Well, I don't know, but that's the thing is I don't know what audience. Like, I don't know how you even get money together and say this is marketable because um, we're making a movie about Howard Hughes who, you know, ran RKO and he was this titan of industry and all these things. But we're not going to focus on any of that. We're going to make him into a a slapstick caricature that doesn't even like reflect what people commonly know him, know about him. What what if the pitch were this, though? What if the pitch were none of those things and the pitch was, hey, we can get Warren Beatty to do this movie and he doesn't have an Oscar yet. 
So yeah, he does. He got an Oscar for well, not for acting, not for acting. So he doesn't. He doesn't have an acting Oscar. Maybe we get it together, get some people to watch it, get some award chatter behind it. It's a good, good way to make us some money. <laughs> and I, uh, and in Warren Beatty's defense, his acting was really good, and you can't blame him for the bad direction. Like oh, sometimes actors just get bad directors. Jake, Warren Beatty directed this film. Oh. Uh, but in his defense, you cannot blame Warren Beatty as a director. Sometimes you get bad scripts, so you really just can't blame oh, Jake, him. Honey, Warren what? Beatty wrote this film. Oh, uh, it's on him. Yeah. This this is his fault. I mean, the problem is that the rules don't apply to him. The the, the I rules. Is, I think it's the the lesson we learned, and we've been saying this a lot. If if you see this film, you will understand. Like the I I wish I would have kept a tally. It's definitely in the dozens. I think. I, I, and every single time they said it, I had the Arrested Development, um, Ron <laughs> Howard. Hey, that's the name of the show. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so weird. And, and they're like, the cast of this movie is also, I mean, there's, I, I wouldn't say necessarily A-list stars, but you know, you've got Matthew Broderick, you've got Alec Baldwin, um, you've got Martin Sheen for a little bit. There's, there's a ton of people rolling through here. And I wonder if it's just like they were doing a favor to their buddy, Warren Beatty. Or yeah, exactly how this if we this had, all... if we had not done the special features that we chose, which is McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I was going to suggest to you most wasted cast, like on paper best cast yeah. in practice terrible. Well, and and I even, was going to go with the Good Shepherd. Do you remember the Good Shepherd? I I remember that I didn't see it because I wasn't like maybe maybe it was actually you you had seen it. And you were like it was really long and it was boring. Oh, it was rough. It was really rough. But it's that same kind of thing where you're like, oh, this should be great. Look, Ed Harris is in this. And, uh-huh. and Well, and that's even at the end of the trailer for this. It just rolls through a bunch of names. You're like, oh, well, maybe maybe it's got more to it than it than it seems. And it was like, I don't know. I, I just don't know. Like there's, there's a scene where uh, Frank Forbes and Howard Hughes, they walk down. It's this, it's this long, unbroken take. They like walk down this pier and then they have – hamburgers at the end of the pier that and it's like two in the morning three in the morning and then they talk to his plane the hercules like howard hughes literally says hey say hello to my plane and it's just, like the tone is so weird in this movie so odd i couldn't tell if it was supposed to be funny or bizarre or they didn't know that it was either of those things i i couldn't get a couldn't get a handle on what they were going for. even in that scene i was like okay that's a weird one yeah i mean i it it felt like Beatty was going for slapstick like it felt like he was going for some sort of old send up to an older uh sort of form of a genre that you don't often see um but it is like there's there's whiplash to a lot of this i, I will say this uh well first let me ask do you think any part of it was funny no i i laughed at at several parts particularly anything pertaining to ice cream um, was fantastic. And I, I and, did too. And his whole rant about DNA was kind of fantastic when he's like explaining, I think it's to, uh, to Marla. He's explaining that they've discovered this thing. It's called DNA and, uh, goes off on this, this long rant. I thought that was, that was amusing. I A couple his, of limeys figured this thing his, out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought his dictation about his wife's cat going missing and, and then the, the payoff that it is a 26 page message. <laughs> I like, I, the, I feel like if a tiger had escaped from a, from the zoo, then there would be a number of men out here with talents to find these animals and trained in the ways of their thinking. Mm-hmm. Oh God. And Aaron Reich did a good job with it. 
Yeah, uh, he he did he did great with what he was given. It's just like his character doesn't seem to have a full arc, and and that that's the that's the thing is like I think I think maybe he's trying to do too much. Like at times it felt several times it felt like this was intended to be like a three and a half hour movie. <laughs> I I, fe- I feel like it it could have been funny though. Like there may have even been funny parts that got cut out. I like la- mm-hmm. I laughed really hard just towards the end, and it reminded me it was supposed to be a comedy when he. Uh, are, are we even caring about spoilers in this? Um, let's just let's roll spoilers right now. Matthew Broderick's character gets fired uh-huh. and he's like, you're old, you're old and you're crazy or uh-huh. what. And, and they went on that back and forth. I laughed really hard for a long time. Everybody in my theater heard me. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's not, right. but I, I, your did, entire, I did, your entire theater lost it. Yeah. It, it was unanimous. Uh, right when it was over, everybody stood up too, but that was just me and I was just leaving. Um, but I thought that was really funny, and it showed really good acting chops from Matthew Broderick, who mm-hmm. I think uh, I haven't liked Matthew Broderick in a role this much in a long time. I I, I agree. It, it reminded me a lot of his uh, his role as Cooter Burger on Thirty Rock. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> yeah, where where they they could they didn't have pens and they were writing in like ketchup and uh huh. Yeah, there's. I mean, and and the thing that I think is like makes it more complicated is the fact that it's not i i honestly went in this movie expecting to kind of be laughing at it and i was surprised when i found that i was laughing with it for the most part at least and um i mean that's the thing is the i think i think Beatty actually did a pretty good job of sort of creating his alternative Howard Hughes and his and justifying it with something like like that uh that long message about the cat like it gets into the psyche of this man with with the sort of thesis of well maybe he was actually just very particular and and that's that's what was going on and he um sort of almost like a you know like a Stanley Kubrick or something like uh he was reclusive but not crazy and also he he even delves some into the fact that he's dealing with this chronic pain and that that makes it difficult for him to be mobile and get around stuff and so I, I I think it also highlighted I guess his like agoraphobia I guess I mm-hmm. I really got that he was afraid and struggling to deal with these people um like when that little kid ran in and he was like get that person out of here yeah i yeah. laughed really which hard at played, that which too. is played for for laughs once again yeah and um, it, just the idea of him calling a kid get that person out of here uh-huh it, it was good but i but still i felt like it was a character he did develop a character and he didn't do a bad job as howard hughes yeah, but but this brings up something that that you uh, had brought up to me off mic. Does Howard Hughes need to be in this movie? I I thought that if he were like a, a looming figure who was just pulling people into his orbit, but was mostly off screen because so they like, barely so saw like him. The first thirty minutes of this movie. Yeah, I I thought the first thirty minutes of it worked really well, and 
I have a question for you. Was it re- was the movie really dark for you? Like you could barely ever see Hughes. No, but apparently you're. Uh, <laughs> I think I think there were actually issues with the out. projection. <laughs> they were like, less screen rules. Screen rules don't apply in that one where the projector's broken because nobody's going to notice. We typically don't screen movies here because the projector's broken, but its rules don't apply. So yeah. uh, they're they're actually doing some weird like tax write off. Like it's 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 a front. <laughs> that theater's a front. <laughs> Yeah, and and they're just like uh, it's like in Breaking Bad where they're just selling fake car wash stuff to uh-huh. to boost yeah. the numbers. They're just cooking the books with rules don't apply. <laughs> the auditors are like, I know you're lying because you have ten people saying rules don't apply, and that's not true. <laughs> and that's over the course of a week. <laughs> more people, more people saw Dangerous Men than saw this movie. It it was it was so dark in the Hughes scenes at the beginning. I thought it was a choice, and Hughes was so reclusive uh-huh. that you like literally couldn't see anything but the outline of his face. Well, and, I mean, in, initially, yeah, it was they. I, I feel like the first thirty minutes when you just sort of you mostly hear his voice, but you might see a shadow or something. I think they were playing that up a bit. Yeah, well, it was especially bad at the AMC in Baton Rouge. <laughs> um. Yeah, so the it's it's a weird like I I feel like I feel like I should have maybe done a little research about like is there any fact to this? I mean, and there's there was a quote that started this film which I I don't remember it verbatim but it was something to the effect of like uh never check the never check the facts on an interesting story, something like that. Um and it was attributed to Howard Hughes. And so it goes into it saying like, "Oh, this is going to be a little fast and loose with facts." I I wasn't really prepared for how fast and loose, um, but it's it's one of those I if if he actually is presenting the untold story of something being his uh, his bastard child essentially, um, this is a weird weird form to tell it in. Was was this uh, Warren Beatty admitting that he's Howard Hughes' son? I I had the thought throughout this film that maybe maybe Warren Beatty legitimately has turned into Howard Hughes as we think of Howard Hughes we, just because like all of these all these choices they are very like strong in their um you can tell he's not wishy-washy on anything but they're weird did you think when you saw at the end of the film uh his talk about his dad and just wishing he could talk to him again and all that 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 was just Warren Beatty talking. Maybe I mean that's I was not expecting the daddy issues that this this movie really tried to tackle in the last like third or so of this film. Um, yeah, it, it, was, star- it started to get in every scene. It was just like selling the company, make sure to keep daddy's name on it, and other guy just kind of laughs. Mm-hmm. Well, laughs and, it, it and it began as like, oh, you know, there's this new thing called birth control. You should invest in, in stocks for it. Like it it starts as sort of just this sort of oh look, we're building it around the time and and all of this, and then as it goes on, you're like, oh oh, he's he's really obsessed with this stuff. This is this look, is just if weird. this wanted to be a Howard Hughes movie, it didn't need Alden Ehrenreich. Or um, Lily the Collins. Actress who, yeah, Lily Collins. It didn't need them. Yeah. But also if it was going to be a movie about Marla Maples and uh, Frank. Forbes. Forbes. Yeah, all, all alliteration for the main characters here, too. Howard Hughes, Frank Forbes, Frank Forbes Marla Mabry. Um, uh, ma- maybe this is a man of the year thing and it's just double letters. Maybe maybe that's what don't, this is all about. I don't know what you're talking about. I oh, you will you will one day. You will. <laughs> um 
but yeah, it's, it, I think, I think he has a few stories here and both of them could have been more interesting than the collection that, that he ended up with. Um, I would honestly, if there was like a three hour version, I would be morbidly interested in watching it to see, uh, I would probably watch it too. What, what was cut out? I mean, because there were, there were several moments like I thought her mother was dead for a good half hour <laughs> uh, because I, she just disappeared and they never addressed why she disappeared. I thought that five more scenes with Matthew Broderick hitting on the the hot young women would have been great because <laughs> that was there. It felt like it was written into the script and hinted at, mm-hmm. but never shown. And I feel like there were scenes shot of that. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff like that, though, like like the whole thing with Paul Schneider, who shows up in the beginning as sort of this uh, kind of abusive boyfriend to one of Howard, the Howard Hughes girls. And then you don't really see much of him. Like he maybe shows up one or two other times. And then at the end, he's the guy who wrote this alleged uh, authorized biography claiming that Howard Hughes is totally mentally unstable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I liked the, the twist at the end when they finally showed him on camera and I realized that he was Mark Brandanowitz the whole time. <laughs> um, I always think of him as uh, the the douchey guy from David Gordon Green movies. <laughs> I he he actually did not really fit the his role that he played in this movie. I don't I, he did fine. It wasn't his fault. But he didn't look like the greaser I thought he should have been at the beginning. His role was just a guy with a duck butt haircut. Yeah, pretty pretty much. And they showed him that one time they like showed the shot from outside the bar in mm-hmm. inside of it. And I was just like I recognize him and I, I really didn't put him put it together to the end. I was like, ah, oh, the guy from Parks and, Parks and Rec. Yeah. But he just didn't quite fit. And I was like, it, it was weird casting, but it was good. He did a fine, he did a fine job. Yeah. It, I, but that's, that's across the board. I mean, like the whole, the Ed Harris is in this movie for like two scenes. Why did Warren Beatty call in these, the, the favors that he had for this movie? I don't know, man. I'm, it, I'm sure that's what it is. I, the casting director didn't spend the money to get Ed maybe, Harris. Ed Harris said, "Oh yeah, I'll come in. Warren is fine." Maybe he thought it was the last movie he's going to direct. He's, you know, he 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 doesn't think he's got the uh, the Kirk Douglas uh, flair. He's not going <laughs> to be around that much longer. I I don't know because it's it's been a while since he's directed something. I, I don't know because he seems in good health and honest to God, the man the man did a good job acting. Yeah, no, he was he was great. Maybe maybe not as great as something we're we're going to get to later. Uh, but he he was he was solid. I enjoyed him. How how what what do you think his best scene was? Let me ask you that. Um, maybe the DNA rant. That was that was the thing that really stuck out to me. That or like just his. I loved I love sort of the glee and the whiplash of the whole everything revolving around the uh, around the ice cream. That was good. But I'm gonna say his best scene, if you ask me, was when he was flying the airplane and singing the the Al Jolson song or whatever it was. And that's that's one of those moments when I was like, oh, maybe Warren Beatty is just actually Howard Hughes. It, it it was it was really a good scene, but also Steve Coogan. I think that's his name. Sort of wasted yeah, too. Yeah, why is Steve Coogan in this movie? Yeah, it's oh, so. <laughs> this was a weird thought I had, kind of unrelated. I was like, man, Steve Coogan would be good as all three characters in the inevitable Doctor Strange Love remake. <laughs> I, I would Steve watch Coogan, that. I would watch that. Yeah. That's actually that's a that's a great pick. Yeah, um, cuz in that in that, you know, British Air Force outfit, he looked like uh Colonel Mandrake, I think the yeah, name is. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, no, he could do that. 
He's not Peter Sellers level, but he's good. You know, we, we've been talking a lot about all the, the cast and the people who are in this. We haven't really touched on, other than harping on Beatty being pretty good, we haven't talked about the acting too much. So, um, I mean, what do you, what do you think of, of Ehrenreich and, and Lily Collins in this? Um, I, I felt like neither of them had that much to do, even though they probably are the leads in the film. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought they both did a lot with what they were given, and it just reinforces my belief that Alden Ehrenreich is a good actor and much like if I travel to New York today I know I'll see Adam Driver if I get in a time machine to 50s Hollywood I know Alden Ehrenreich's gonna be there I uh yeah it's you know Alden Ehrenreich he's he's charming as hell in this um even if even if he's not giving given a whole lot to do and then Lily Collins I don't know her from anything else maybe she's had uh bigger roles but this felt like if if this movie had been more focused on Marla and Frank, I think this could have been her real like breakout sort of performance. Um, she's, she's quite good in it. And, and the, you know, the rules do not apply to her. And um, look, I I know that she was good and she will have bigger roles, but she will never have bigger eyebrows. I knew that was coming. I knew I, I, with I, your setup. I, I knew where I, you I were going. I thought that right away. I was like, Oh, they made her eyebrows big because once she gets to Hollywood, they're going to like do a make. Nope. Nope, didn't happen because the rules don't apply to her, Jake. And that's that's the whole thing with this film is like he is. I I really think Beatty is trying to make a statement um, about this film. And uh, well, actually, which brings me to to a question I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, Roger Ebert often would say that you know he he would criticize and judge films based on whether he thought it did what the director intended to do. Do you think? Uh, Warren Beatty as writer, director, and co-star or star. Do you think he was successful in creating what he set out to and intended to create? That's a really complex question. <laughs> so here's, I'm just going to say a couple things that I think. A, it feels like this is the shell of a longer movie. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if there were things he wanted to get done that he didn't do. I know that he's wanted to tell the Howard Hughes story for a long time. And I think he, the primary thing, like, they probably cut out a lot of other stuff to leave the Howard Hughes stuff because that's what he was most passionate about. I think he did a good job of showing his own unique Howard Hughes. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was probably as funny or as poignant as he wanted it to be. But overall, it established a universe Mm -hmm. and it showed the things going on in that universe. And I was unsatisfied with some of it, but I think he showed it, showed the world he wanted to show. Yeah, I think he did too. I mean, I, it's, Sort of, I I don't think this is a good movie. Like by by all technical standpoints, it's it's pretty rough around the edges. But I was still like, it still won me over. Like I said, um, it, it the, felt like an intentional movie. It felt like he was doing the things he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And and so maybe I mean I doubt I I really highly doubt there's going to be a director's cut of of this film, given just like how little attention it it got. Um, and even like, you know, critics were mostly mixed to negative on it. I think, I think Matt Zeller sites thought it was, it was all right. Um, kind of got the, the same thing, got that he was going for this weird, charming throwback. That's also like sort of odd and sort of, um, a little bit absurd. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it sort of feels like the type of film where he probably made the film that he set out to make and then had to rein it back in to a two-hour slapstick comedy about Howard Hughes. Spoilers are done. Spoilers are done. Turns out Rose by 
dad. I don't want to recommend it to anybody, but if it were if it were on TV or streaming or something and you want to see something interesting, put it on. I honestly I would recommend this to anyone if you can see it for free, do it. Yeah, and and if you do sit down to see it for free, Chris can definitely recommend a beer to pair with it or a beer to pair with some buttered rum ice cream or banana nut. Or is it is it French vanilla? Is French vanilla the same thing as regular vanilla? Chris, do you want to recommend a beer? Sure. Sure. I've got a beer to recommend. Um, I, you know, I didn't even think to go the whole ice cream route. I really, I really should have tried to, to work that in. Okay. I'm going to call an audible. So the, uh, the beer I was going to recommend was the voodoo donut lemon chiffon crueler ale by rogue ales in Newport, Oregon, because we have this, uh, this banana nut connection, this ice cream connection. I'm going to, I'm going to choose a different. So rogue has done several beers that are collaborations with uh, voodoo donuts, which is a amazing donut shop in Portland, Oregon, um, who does a lot of very interesting, like they'll put, you know, like fruity pebbles or bacon uh, or a, a lot of, a lot of things that you typically don't get it on a donut, they'll put them on a donut Oreo. I'm interested to see how this spins into a beer, but keep going. Okay. So this recommendation, it's, I, I'm going to go call an audible and go with actually the voodoo, voodoo donut, chocolate, banana, peanut ale by rogue. And this is, uh, you had me until you said ale. I was in for a voodoo donut, chocolate, banana, and peanut. Well, you, I mean, and you can get that, you can, you can get that donut and, and pair it with this. Well, actually I take that back. You can't really pair it with this. I don't think this, I don't think this beer is in production any longer. It was a uh, a limited run sort of thing. I had it once and once was probably enough. It was, it was more, I, I tried it for morbid curiosity, which is a lot of the reason why we saw rules don't apply. Look, um, it's, it's not in production, but that does not mean Howard Hawks would not have 360 cases of it. <laughs> that's true. That's absolutely true. 350 gallons. I think I should probably it. say Howard Hughes, Howard Hawks might have them, but I'm concerned <laughs> with Howard Hughes. <laughs> um, and what what can I say about this 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 beer? It's uh it's not a great uh not a great beer, but uh fascinating and intriguing. It's it's worth the taste for if you're you know if you are into uh getting kind of adventurous with your your beers, it would be worth trying once. Maybe splitting it. You know, it came in a seven seven hundred fifty milliliter bottle, so split it with a friend or two, and you'd probably be fine. You you get the idea. Um, the, uh, and there's, there's a few of these, they, they've also made a maple bacon beer. Um, they've made, made several of these voodoo donut beers. And the one that I was going to recommend the lemon chiffon, I think it more closely resembles sort of my feeling about, um, about this movie in that it's weird. It's a little odd, but I, I still kind of like it. Um, this banana peanut chocolate thing, not so much. It doesn't even like the banana is probably the most strong flavor of those and it's just it's weird it's bad bad in a beer but but worth it worth a try i'm i am going on way too long with this but bad uh, but worth a try just like rules don't apply yeah but if you you know if if you want to give it a shot see if you can find a one of these these beautiful pink bottles of voodoo donut chocolate banana and peanut butter 
by Rogales. Normally, I would say Rules Don't Apply is currently playing at movie theaters nationwide, but I'm going to I'm going to doubt that that's true. It's so it's dwindling. It's um if you if you can see uh, let me say this, if it's at a dollar store or dollar store, which it will be soon. <laughs> it might be. It um, will be. If, it, if it's at a dollar theater and you have nothing to do on like a Saturday afternoon, go see it. Take some friends. Have have a fun time. I don't I don't think you're going to hate it. Um, so, so, so instead, I'll say rules don't apply will be available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures in probably about five minutes. Just yeah, that's, that's it's going to be there very soon. That's so, that's accurate. So if you've seen it and you're willing to admit it, tell us your thoughts at hello at war starts at midnight dot com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break with a recap of week two of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League. And we'll take another visit to the Beatty Bungalow with a review of Robert Altman's alt-western McCabe and Mrs. Miller. time for the week two recap for the midnight warrior fantasy movie league for some of you this may be the first recap you're hearing since you joined the movie league for others this is just the first one you'll hear with our new cineplex names maybe we should reintroduce our cineplexes for this season chris what is your cineplex going by these days oh i'm uh son you got a panty on your head uh are, are, are you now what's that what's that a reference to you don't know what that's a reference to Oh, I know what it's a reference to. Okay. It's a reference to Raising Arizona, of course. I will I will say this. This is true. The first time I saw it, I said, when do they say that in Fantastic Mr. Fox? <laughs> who, who who says that? That's actually, uh, that, that's a good, like, train of thought, I guess. I, I, I see what you did. Yeah. I was like, who, who wears some underwear on their head? Ah. Uh, I, on the other hand, I'm going by Cineplex Luthor. That's that's my name for the year. And it's because I, I want to try to be the villain of our fantasy movie league. Yeah. How's that working out so far? Poorly. Um, <laughs> I I thought that I could like pick the just outside of the best Cineplex option and everybody else would be mad because their stuff did bad and mine did good. But in reality, mine just does bad week after week. <laughs> yeah. This so is, this, this is a this is a crack scheme you got going. Uh, next season, it may be different. We'll have to see because this strategy of playing the villain and trying to pick the off off kilter, lower percentage play for best in the flex. It has not been paying off because the week results for week two may just be reaching us in the studio, but this weekend was decided 
early on Saturday morning when the first set of previews came out. Tom Ford's Nocturnal Animals at just 36 bucks per screen has crushed the competition this week, earning six spots in the best Cineplex next to a double dose of Moana. Hey, Jake, I actually I want to contest this idea. Um, I don't think it's Nocturnal Animals so much that crushed. It's the fact that Nocturnal Animals was so cheap and allowed you to get another Moana in that really made this a volatile Cineplex. Yeah, if this is one of your first weeks, you may be wondering how, you know, a $3.2 million gross makes a film this dominant. Uh, the first thing is to remember is that the best performer of each week earns a $2 million per screen bonus. Now, this may not seem like much, but for most weeks, finding this film is what separates the winners from the losers. So these six screens earn you a $12 million bonus. In addition, if you got the perfect Cineplex, you earn an additional $5 million bonus. And that means that Cineplex's The Majestic, School of Rock, and OPC, Where Art Thou, all score perfect Cineplexes on the back of the $17 million in bonuses they earned. Also, I should point out that OPC, Where Art Thou, is the new Cineplex name for Film School Dropout, a.k.a. Lacey Bowen, a.k.a. last season's champion. So her, like, third perfect Cineplex in five weeks or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So even though my own pick of six screens of Arrival and two screens of Fantastic Beasts only was a little less than, like, $1 million under the non-gross bonus for this Cineplex, Mm -hmm. I lost by $17 million, or almost 18. Yeah. I'm I'm not bitter. This is just (laughs) coal to fuel my Cineplex Luthor villain rage. So, Chris, can you pass me that razor blade over there? Because I think I have some head hair I need to remove to, you know, really get into character. Not sure if I'm more of a Gene Hackman or Kevin Spacey Lex Luthor. Still trying to work that Uh, out. Jake. Uh-huh. I'm afraid you're probably more of a Jesse Eisenberg, like Lex oh, Luthor. Don't, um, don't, can, can I be more of a Heisenberg with the bald head? Is that okay? Jesse, <laughs> Jesse Heisenberg? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think that's going to work out. Is, is that and, a real person? Maybe and, I didn't understand Breaking Bad. <laughs> Jesse Heisenberg? I, I, didn't even I am catch, Eisenberg. I didn't even catch that, that I, melding you just did. I think he watched Social Network, and that's what inspired him to do all the meth. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and so he was like, I am Eisenberg. Checks out. So going into week three, analysts are picking one movie to have grosses that go up to the moon. Wait, that's no moon. That's a Rogue One, a Star Wars story. The pricing team at FML has seen in their infinite wisdom to split the film into three separate days and price them independently. So here's your riddle for the week. You're going to have one screen of Star Wars, at least. So do you go with the Friday gross, which includes the Thursday preview screenings for 775 bucks? Do you go with just the Saturday gross for 452 bucks or just the Sunday gross for 403 bucks? This is the first split since I've been seriously following this league. And I'm going to have to go back to The Force Awakens to even find a comp to make some educated guesses on gross per day. So, Chris, what's your favorite day of the week? And why are you currently stuck at eight screens of La La Land? <laughs> oh, I just, I, I would, I so, I just so want to see La La Land. That's, that's it. That's all. You know, if you show it in your Cineplex on this, you don't get to go and watch it. I know. That's not magically going to make it show in Tulsa. I know. And that's the problem because it's not showing in Tulsa this weekend. And, uh, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty bummed out about that. Um, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of back and forth. I think I'm going to go Friday because I know you can get Saturday and Sunday in together 
if if you skip out on Friday. But you got to think with and this is this film is the exception, I think, you know, it's there's a lot of films that um, I maybe would would consider that the the two days is going to be worth more than the Thursday and Friday. But a lot of people, a whole lot of people are going to be seeing this Thursday night. A whole lot of people have already bought their tickets for Thursday and Friday night. Um, so I think I think you kind of have to. So I, I think the best comp, like I said, is Star Wars The Force Awakens. And if you look at its gross, it made $119 million on its Friday, 68 on Saturday, and 60 on Sunday, which looks like the numbers they use to kind of split this up. Mm-hmm. So your one screen will get you, you know, $120 million, But if you double up and go two Saturdays, you're going to get more like $130 million if it if it maintains what Force Awakens did. I don't, I mean, I don't think it's going to maintain what Force Awakens did. Do you think, didn't they do this? Didn't they split up with the uh, Captain? Captain America Civil War back in, what was that, like April or May? Yeah, but the problem is that was April or May, and Star Wars came out December 18th, 2015. So almost one year ago, it came out one week later. Yeah, but this is not, but this is not Star Wars. And that's, it is Star Wars, but it's not, it's not Star Wars big star. It's not Chewbacca and Han, rest in peace. Spoilers. (laughs) Oh my God, spoilers. It's in our spoiler alert song, Jake. The spoiler um, alert doesn't apply to the FML segment. <laughs> Good lord. It's literally in the song though. It's literally in the song. Um I don't think that's in the song. <laughs> Is that in the song now? Good yeah. god, you're cruel. <sighs> Kylo Ren's dad is totally dead. Yeah, but that's that's got some mystery to it. <laughs> Jeez. Man, oh man. Yeah, I I I don't know. I just think that I, I just think that maybe this movie being more adjacent to the original trilogy might get some people motivated. And this idea that it, it's a little darker might have uh, some of what people were really longing for when they complained about The Force Awakens. I, I don't know. I, I think it's going to do Deathly Hollows numbers. I don't think it's going to do Force Awakens numbers. See, my fear is that it's going to do Fantastic Beast numbers. Because it's oh, sort of one man. of those adjacent franchise movies and not prime. Yeah, but it's still Star Wars. It's I mean, Star Wars here's here's the other thing you gotta consider. Star Wars is still gonna do well. Star Wars has this generational, um, huge, huge depth to it. Um, you've got you got people who they want to take their kids and their grandkids to see this because, you know, they're sharing in a Harry Potter doesn't have that. It has maybe a little bit with their kids. Maybe a little bit. I don't know. The other thing that this movie has is it has the Death Star. Yeah, it has the Death Star and it has, uh, uh, what's his face? Darth Vader. That guy. That guy. Um, that guy. That guy. Why don't you tell him who, whose daddy is, Chris? Why don't you just tell everybody who he has fathered? Uh, actually, Jake, that's in the theme song as well. God, Lord. Man. <laughs> Next, next, you're just going to try to spoil Donnie Darko. I've never listened to an episode, so I really don't know what's in the theme song. Okay, so what what do you think you're going with? What does your Cineplex look like right now, Jake? It, it may not be this when I write my article, but as of right now, I have two screens of Rogue One Saturday. I have four screens of Nocturnal Animals and two of Hacksaw Ridge. I'm looking for Nocturnal Animals to repeat because it's a movie that I do not understand, and I do not understand really how it got that many people out to see it. Mm-hmm. But it's it's doing well, and it's got like a 75% people liked it on Rotten Tomatoes. It may be able to have enough legs being so different from Rogue One. And I think Hacksaw Ridge is also an alternate 
to Rogue One. Rogue One eats almost every other movie out there, except maybe Office Christmas Party. Yeah. So that's where I stand. I'm looking right now, I'm looking at a Friday Rogue One, because as I said, I think this is the exception where definitely you go with, you go, even though it's it's super expensive, but I'm going to bet on it and, and see what happens. And then what I did is I actually, I threw that in and then threw in Hacksaw Ridge all the way filled up and then said, okay, what can I take one away? What can I add? I'll add Moana. Take one away. What can I add? I'll add Office Christmas Party. Take one away. What can I add? Nothing that I think is going to do better than Hacksaw Ridge if, and this is my plan, I think that at $11, Hacksaw Ridge has a good chance of being the, what is it, perfect screen, uh, what it would, what's the term, Jake? Best performer? Best performer. I think Hacksaw Ridge has the chance of being best performer, and if it is, then that's an extra $10, $10 million in my bank. Hey, you were listening to me up top when I said bonuses matter, and that's what makes the difference. Yeah, let's hope so. I could crash and burn, too. Still need more FML in your life? Catch my weekly recaps and predictions each Wednesday on the War Starts at Midnight blog. And if you've got a hot take on the next Perfect Cineplex, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at WSAMPod. I'm telling you, with some up here to handle all them puntless properly, you can make yourself at least double the money you make on your own. Oh, now, what makes you think I ain't thought of that already? Uh, them tents, you know, it's just uh, temporary. What do you do when one girl fancies another? What How do you know when a girl really has a monthly or when she's just taking a few days off? What about when they don't get their monthlies? Because they don't. What do you do then? I suppose you know all about seeing that. And what about the customers? Who's going to skin them back and inspect them? You're going to do that? Would you... Because if you don't, this town will be clapped up inside of two weeks if it's not already. What about when, when business is slow? You're just going to let the girls sit around on their bums? Because I'll tell you something, Mr. McKay. When a good org gets time to sit around and think, four out of five times you turn to religion, because that's what they was born with. And when that happens, you find yourself filling the bloody church down there instead of your own pockets. Now, I haven't got a lot of time to sit around and talk to a man who's too dumb to see a good proposition when it's put to him. Do we make a deal or don't we? Every so often, we like to own up to our cinematic sins on the show by discussing a seminal film from the past that one of us has somehow overlooked. These reviews are shamefully dubbed our war crimes. Today, in the second half of our Warren Beatty double feature, we're discussing a film that, until quite recently, qualified as a war crime for both of us. Released in 1971, Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller certainly feels like the type of film that could have only come out of the new Hollywood era. The picture follows John McCabe, of course, played by Warren Beatty, as he settles down in the Pacific Northwest mining town of Presbyterian Church. McCabe is a gambler who fancies himself a businessman, and as such, he begins his reign of the town by building himself a saloon, and then with the aid of the Madam Constance Miller, played by Julie Christie, he constructs a bathhouse and his crowning achievement— a Gooseberry Ranch. Uh, that That's Warren Beatty speak for Whorehouse. Indeed. Like the other early Altman works I've seen, McCabe and Mrs. Miller feels like the type of film that viewers will either connect with on an intimate level or find completely directionless and alienating. So, Jake, I'm curious. Would you belly up to the bar at John McCabe's saloon? Or is his frontier establishment one you'd rather not step foot in? And furthermore, what's the matter with you? You got a turd in your pocket or something? <laughs> Um, well, I, I don't know that I would go to John McCabe's bar because I'm not a big fan of salmonella. So <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if they're washing those glasses properly after all those uh, whiskey and eggs. Mm-hmm. But I, I think a lot of times he, he's getting his double whiskey and egg in uh, 
Sheenins, Sheenins, the uh, the the saloon that's in town when he when he rolls in. It seems right. like he's spending a lot of time uh, Sheen. It seems like he's spending a lot of time there. So, was there some big thing in the seventies where eggs were safe to just drink? Because I never saw anybody drink an egg in a movie before or after the 70s. And <laughs> since then, Rocky we have like E. coli or salmonella or whatever it is in eggs. My mom won't even let me lick the, the spoon after she makes cookie dough with it because one little bit of it might give me salmonella. And I'm, I'm watching Beatty drink 10, 10 eggs in this movie. I mean, I mean, if, if you want to get the cynical answer, Jake, uh, factory farming was not nearly as rampant and, and problematic as it is today. So there is something to that. But uh, yeah, it is it is it is an odd like I mean, I, I wonder how many eggs this man consumed over the course of this movie. I mean, you see you see him consume an egg almost as much as you see his butt in another film that stars him and Julie Christie, Hal Ashby shampoo. And he's just bare-assed all throughout that movie. Yeah. It, the, the thing about the egg in this movie, it usually cut after they cracked it open and put it in there uh, before oh, he no, drank. Oh, no, but you see him swallow several. You do, but that could be that could be some props department work. I, I don't know, but in Rocky, I don't know, that, that in Rocky sound... Sylvester Stallone cracked the eggs and drank the eggs in one shot. Right, right. Which I always thought as a kid was like, even at that point, I was like, they use the camera and not cutting to show you that he really drinks these eggs. Uh-huh. It's like the world's lowest level evil Knievel. Watch a man <laughs> drink an egg and live. Uh, but okay, but but to like back to back back to McCabe and Miss Miller. Um, what did did you did you connect with this movie? Is this? Uh, I I know some people have trouble with. With Altman, and I don't know how much early Altman you've seen. I assume you've seen MASH, right? Well, and that's what I was going to say about this movie is I was a little upset because I went in to it knowing it was an Altman movie and it did uh-huh. not end with a football game. <laughs> and that that was weird for me. No, mm-hmm. I, I, I thought this movie, I didn't connect with it. I liked McCabe as a character because mm-hmm. he, he said interesting stuff. I really didn't connect to it until... Um, are we rolling spoilers for this? Um, I mean, it's an older film. I assume, like, if you're listening to this, that uh, you've you've seen it, or you you don't, you know. Let's let's just say spoilers. I'm not even going to roll the song. Yeah, we'll just say spoilers. And from if, here if on you out. do care, pause it, come back after you after you watch it. Yeah, and but, if you, you want to see really rad recommendations, check the show notes, and you can skip ahead. Yep. Yeah. So I I thought when he went and met with the the big British guy in like the the gray coat. Right. And uh, McCabe changed from being this uh, bombastic, you need to get your offer way up high in the sky, 14, 16. And then suddenly Mm -hmm. he was just, he was negotiating against himself. He's like, I take 8,000, 6,000. You you know what what, what they, like, he's just. Yeah, he kind of crumbles there. Well, and then, and then the reveal where he's like, oh, I'm not, I'm here to hunt bear. I'm not here to. He he wasn't there to hunt bear. He was like, you dare to hunt bear. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, but I, I I bet he'd hunt some bear as well though. Yeah, some some bear ass baity and shampoo he might hunt. <laughs> but well and then and then the way that, that scene concludes when uh McCabe leaves kind of with his tail between his legs, and then he says, So who is who is this uh what uh Pudgy. Bill Roundtree? No, who who is uh, this oh. Bill Roundtree? Who you know, the whole thing when when he rolls into town, um everyone I mean I think it starts with with Sheehan, um, everyone's saying, oh, well, that's, uh, you know, that's that's Pudgy McCabe. He killed Bill Roundtree, and Bill Roundtree was a 
tough son of a bitch. So like he, he just, without doing anything, got this aura, um, which, which brings up since we're, we're talking spoilers. Do you think, do you think he did kill Bill Roundtree? Do no. you think that actually really, I, I killed Bill Roundtree. I think he might have. I don't think, I don't think he was put pudgy McCabe. I think there was a different McCabe. There's, there's another, there's another pudgy McCabe going around. There's a, pudgy I mean, Mc- well, but he intimately knew exactly what happened with, with the, the poker game. Yeah. He also, he, he also backed up from it, but he, he explains, he explains it to smile. I mean, I think he backed up from it because he's talking to a seven foot tall man who's wearing a bear and basically is a bear. So, so you think he may have just been sitting at the table when Roundtree was killed? I, I, or, or he may have done it because the reason I say this is because, um, it's, it's said that, you know, he shot him square between the eyes with a Derringer and what happens at the very end of this movie. It's just true. He gets Smalley square between the eyes with a Derringer. Yep. Um, it's, and that's, that sort of, I think that explains this McCabe character kind of in a nutshell is he's, he's sort of a fight or flight sort of guy. And he's, he's very, he's always, um, on the edge of that. But when he has to make a decision, even if it's the wrong decision, and I think he makes a lot of wrong decisions in this movie, um, he does it and he does it full force. It, I, I thought he was a very, very interesting character with a lot of questions around him in a good Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Uh, but back, back to what I was saying, when, when that guy said he, that, that guy's never killed a man. Mm -hmm. That's when I was really hooked on the movie. Everything up until that was fine and was all setting it up. And after that, you know, the, the train was on the track, so to speak, for right. everything that happened afterwards. I thought the movie worked really well. Mm-hmm. It was just all Altman world building before that. And that I was watching, I was thinking, the world's really interesting. I really enjoy watching this town, but it's not much of a movie here. And I didn't care much about the whorehouse. And his relationship with Mrs. Miller wasn't like, it was there, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the center of the film. So everything that you're describing is you're, you're basically describing my initial reaction to this movie. Like really? first time I watched it, um, first hour, I was kind of like, this is, this is in- interesting. It's a, like, I, I enjoy kind of what we're doing, but it feels like it's kind of meandering. And then you get to the scene with, uh, Smalley, the, the bear hunter and everything sort of escalates from, from there. You've got the amazing scene on the bridge with the cowboy played by Keith Carradine, like a, like a 20 year old Keith Carradine who I think looks like Troy Aikman. Um, (laughs) And, and it's such a, like, that's such a tragic moment. And that's sort of like, that's the first sign of like real violence in, in the film. And it's really kind of off putting. Yeah. Because, because the, the first, you know, fight outside where the guy ended up dying, Mm -hmm. that that was just sort of felt like frontier ruckus, a little bit of bad luck. Right. Well, and Frontier Ruckus slash, like, you messed with a, a whore and did something you shouldn't have, and she stabbed you. Mm-hmm. Um, versus this was just, like, th- this was cold-blooded, like, fun and games with, you know, a kid who had a gun and wanted to use it. Um, and that, that really sets the tone for where this, I mean, I think, I think the last 20 minutes of this film is immaculate. Um, but what I, what I want to say is going back and watching it a second time, cause I, I wanted to watch again to prepare for the conversation cause it had been a few weeks since I'd seen it and all of my problems that I had with it the first time, as far as like connection completely went away. And I, and it's, it has that, it has that Altman quality where, um, and this is something that as someone who cares a lot about technique and, and very specifically, you know, 
getting sound and visuals absolutely perfect. His movies can be difficult for me to enter into a lot of times because Mm -hmm. he's more concerned with making something feel lived in and messy. And that's, you know, goes to the aesthetic of, I mean, this film, they, they actually, um, flashed the film before they shot it. They would expose it to a little bit of light, which is why it looks so kind of muddy and green Ah. and, and, and gross. Like everything that feels like a mistake was actually intentional here. You know, he, he wanted the audio to kind of bleed and conversations to, which is something that happens in mash quite a bit as well, where you're not even sure which conversation you're supposed to be listening to. And can I, can I, can I, while we're on the topic of audio, make yeah. a shameful confession? Sure. I didn't really like the Leonard Cohen songs in the movie. <laughs> it bored me to damn tears. Really? Yeah. I, I thought they were like, I like that they're not directly related to the content of the movie, but they sort of feel like they spiritually connect, I guess. Um, yeah. I like and, them. I mean, I get the complaint, but. And it, it, it set the tone and it was it was fine. It was better than like some kind of hokey like try to find something that fit or whatever. But mm-hmm. it did feel like the like the fifties and sixties, like we got a we got a Western, let's write a theme song to go with it, crashed into Harold and Maud era, let's play all Cat Stevens mo- music through the whole movie. Yeah. And like pick an artist and kind of stick with them the whole time. It crashed into that and I, it just felt like a really like sign of the times type thing. I mean, it, it's totally, and that that's sort of what I was saying up top. It totally like has that new Hollywood feel to it where mm-hmm. it's like, I don't think you could have gotten away with this before or after this decade. Um, it's, it's a, it's an odd choice, but for me, for me, it works. It doesn't, it doesn't attract. Like I, I kind of find it more charming revisiting um, for sure. And that's, that's a lot of this, a lot of this movie. So like you, you mentioned the relationship between, um, uh, McCabe and, and Constance Miller, like it, the first time I watched, I, I kind of only really saw his perspective on it. You know, he, he shows up with flowers, he's courting her, um, all of these things. Like he, he really wants to, um, start a relationship with her. Uh, mm-hmm. and, he and she's, has, and she's making him pay the whole time. And he's, yeah. And, and I love, I love that he's always mumbling to himself and there's that towards the end. Um, <laughs> he's like, well, and the only woman never loved you was a damn whore. Well, I never was a percentages man. Um, <laughs> I love, I love that, that moment. Um, and, and the way that he, you know, he's, he's down on himself. And, um, but the second time around I, I began because it's, it's very light touches throughout, but, there's a real guardedness about about Miller, um, played by Julie Christie, and I, I think a lot of credit goes to has to go to Julie Christie and has to go to Altman for casting her, um, because she she does so much in just little little looks, little moments, little uh, little nuanced sort of tells, and um, I did like the second time really really kind of got on that wavelength and and could feel this sort of like, it's not really a tense relationship, but it's a, like, it's a Rocky, like they, they just, the world that they exist in, you know, she's, she's constantly hiding her addiction from him, her opium addiction. Um, and, and so it's this, she doesn't want him to think less of her, uh, because she's, you know, she's a drug addict and, and those little, those little touches are really nice, but they're subtle. And, and for as smart as he is, uh, or thinks he is and, has all this stuff going. He can't, I don't think he figures out at all that she's a drug addict. Cause he's just like, no. sometimes I come over here and you're way different. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and but if you if you really look at it, she's the brains. She is the brains of the operation. And oh the yeah, that, she elevates that, him from being just just a little you know a tent owning you know pimp. Yeah, yeah. To running a, a the best whorehouse, people coming from out of town. Yeah, to I mean that that conversation they have in uh in the saloon where uh, he's saying, you know, you everyone's over in your whorehouse. They haven't been in my saloon all day. I haven't sold a, sold a single bottle. And, you know, he doesn't see, he can't see the forest for the trees. Um, and, and she can, and she's like, that, that's the other thing is if she, uh, she could easily be a vindictive character who's like, oh, well, I'm going to take advantage of this guy who has some money and have him build me a whorehouse and then sell him out or whatever. But there's, there's a relationship there. And it's a, it's a difficult to define relationship, I think, because it's less of a, you know, it's not your typical Western love story or anything like that. Well, and, and it brings in like gender roles into it as well. Cause he's like wrestling with the fact that he even got in a business with her. Cause he already told the other guy he didn't want a partnership. Right. He wasn't for partnership. Then mm-hmm. he gets in with partners with her and then he's like, yeah, do business with a woman. You can't expect her to respect you. <laughs> like, which is a weird, like he wanted to do business with her, but also wants her to respect him. But is saying that, why would a woman respect a man who would get into business with a woman? It, it was a like a weird backwards logic thing. He's just mumbling to himself. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's that's when well, he's, he's that same scene where he's mumbling to himself. Yeah, he's thinking out loud though. He's he's yeah. like he's not quite sure exactly what you know what it is that even he he's he's trying to figure out what his next you know what his next uh, attack is. Yeah, it was he, he's he that was a really interesting character. Um. What what do you think? Of, this is not something we talk about much, but the the costume design in this film, the the I mean, giant coat. Every yeah, I think I mean, I think everything was pretty pretty fantastic. From from the giant coat to just like the long johns that Keith Carradine's cowboy is wearing, and and that giant mm-hmm. hat. Like yeah, it and from what I understand, they actually they mostly shot this film in sequential order because they were building the town as they shot the film and so they actually like like the uh i don't know if it was the costume designer or you know someone in the art department um just put all of the construction workers in period uh attire (laughs) so that they could actually be building parts of the town in the background as they were shooting the film that's awesome um chris uh if if we end up going to a halloween party uh, do you, can I go as McCabe and you go as the giant, uh, what, what's his name? The Smalley Smalley. Yeah. Of course his name is Smalley. Of course his name is Smalley. Yeah. Uh, Pudgy yeah, and Smalley. That, that, that's a deal. <laughs> Pudgy that, and Smalley. That, I, I can grow a mean beard and I know you're a mustache man right now. <laughs> well, mustache is gone now. Thank, thankfully that, that mustache <sighs> is gross. Uh, yeah. but, uh, yeah, there, I, I thought, I thought just the immersion of, um, all of the beyond, you know, beyond just costume, but art design in general was the was world building pretty, was- pretty great. And there's um, particularly around the whorehouse. There was this I don't know if you notice there's this visual motif of sort of blending uh, white light to yellow light to red light um, that it's it's kind of it's constantly throughout in the interior, but then also bleeds out into there's a few like night night shots outside the whorehouse and you see it just projected on the snow even so so one of the things i the only thing i would say about the aesthetic that i didn't like may have been my dvd transfer may have been something did they use like a fake snowstorm overlay in that last scene so they did and that was distracting 
Um, so I, I did a little bit of research since I had the time into sort of uh, what what was going on with, with that and the production. And I guess uh, they just happened to in the last like few days of shooting since they, they shot this sequentially um, happened to have a sto- snowstorm come up. They were shooting in Vancouver. It takes place, I think, in like northern California or Oregon, something like that. Um, and so. Robert Altman being enterprising said, okay, we're going to shoot the final scene right now. And I think they actually, they shot it in reverse order so that they had the most snow. And then as Mm -hmm. it melted, um, it, you know, it went, went backwards. But uh, I think that was a, had to have been some basically continuity of sometimes it was snowing real hard and sometimes it wasn't snowing at all. So they had to throw that overlay to make it, uh, okay. Look like it, it was in a storm. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's unfortunate. It's one of those things that like today you wouldn't even notice it's a technological problem, but so you watch this, you watch this on DVD. Was this criterion DVD or was criterion this DVD? It okay. actually looked, looked great. Um, even on the DVD. It's because I, I was looking at comparisons between that and, uh, the Warner brothers release, just the regular mm-hmm. um, DVD. And it looks like Warner brothers actually tried to kind of, add some contrast back into it and add some saturation oh. that they, you know, Altman and, and the DP whose name escapes me right now, um, tried to, you know, they, they very intentionally made it, they wanted it to look dirty and dingy. And, uh, so criterion brought that back into it, okay. um, which, which I think is interesting. I love, I love the way that, you know, they always, when they restore something, they always try to go with the intent, not, not necessarily because, there are, you know, there's plenty of ways to digitally make this film look cleaner and sharper and better now. It, um, it shouldn't, though. It, it feels like you're looking like an like an old timey photo. Well, and that's and that's exactly what they they were going for. They wanted it to feel like if film could have been shot, you know, back in this time, back in the you know mm-hmm. mid to late uh, 19th century, make it feel like that. And and I think they, you know, they did a great job with that. Even even if it's not the thing that I generally love like it won me over so so let me go over a few things real quick i'm gonna just name five movies okay okay french connection uh-huh. a clockwork orange uh-huh. fiddler on the roof uh-huh. the last picture show uh-huh. and nicholas and alexandra uh-huh did you make that last one up no i did not those are the five best picture nominees from this year from that year from 1971 uh yeah well the 1972, or 1972 Academy Awards, yeah. yeah 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 um I feel like this should have snuck in there. Uh, well, this movie was really um, there's. Do you still have the disc? I still have the disc. Okay, you should watch the. There's uh, two Dick Cavett segments with Pauline Kale and with um, uh, Robert Altman. You okay. should watch those. Uh, it's it's pretty interesting. Like apparently the reception was pretty bad. Warner Brothers wasn't willing to really promote it. And mm-hmm. they were taking it out. Like they put it in theater. It was, it was kind of a rules don't apply situation. Like they put it in theaters and quickly took it out. And, um, Pauline Kale was going around, you know, she, she wrote, wrote a review just praising it. Um, and then went on, you know, went on to Cavett to praise McCabe and Mrs. Miller and say, if this movie is still playing, you need to go see it. You need to, you need to give it your money. It's, it's an amazing, it's a masterpiece, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I think it's one of those that, has only over time, you know, it, it gained a cult status and then has it, it maybe didn't finally even get nominees, nominations for art direction or costume design. Yeah, man. Like that, that to me is a huge snub from something that as someone who very rarely goes like, man, that was fantastic. Like I thought yeah. they nailed the world. Yeah, they did. They absolutely did. 
So it, it was just weird to me, I, which is maybe why, you know, this had never popped up on my list of things I needed to watch. Uh-huh. See, I, I don't remember where I, I first heard, but, you know, I, I had heard from enough people and I, I have a student um, last semester and this semester who uh, had told me it was his favorite film and that kind of reaffirmed like, okay, when, when this Blu-ray comes out, I need to, need to get my hands on it. I need to check it out. And um, yeah, it it's it's not what I was expecting, but it's also a pleasant surprise and it's... Um, it's maybe a difficult movie to, to initially get into, but like I said, like, honestly, I think the last 20 minutes of this movie are a absolute flawless, immaculate masterpiece. Yes. I'm, I'm not trying to, to downplay the fact that it's your student's favorite film, but I I do want to say this. I think every film student, uh, (laughs) worth his salt at some point is going to pick an early seventies film. See Mm -hmm. like their first really out there early seventies film and go, Oh my God, that's my favorite movie for me. It was Harold and Maude, Mm -hmm. but I could totally see this as well because so many things were going crazy between, you know, 68 and 73 and nobody knew what was going on and how to make money anymore and what people wanted to see and what things should be done. Well, and that's exactly, I mean, this is, this is coming right off the era of, you know, the, the late sixties when you have easy rider and you've got some of those, uh, Rafelson pictures and stuff mm-hmm. that are made on nothing and, and making a lot of money. And so I feel like that's the only reason this movie got funded. Um, but I'm, I'm glad it did. I'm really glad it did. It's, uh, you know, kind of like rules don't apply. It's weird, but it's, it's weird in such a like more, uh, pleasing manner and such a like, uh, just everything, everything folds in on itself really well. It's, a really, really rewatchable film. Also, well. if you don't get the right leading man, this movie doesn't work. Mm-mm, not at all. Period. And Beatty just knocks it out of the park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and we we talked about you know a lot of Altman is improv. Did did Beatty come up with this stuff? I, he, I don't know. Is he man. a minor I was, I, genius of talk? I was curious about that because he does. He has a ton of great quotes. I mean, those those that we've we've. Mentioned the uh, if a if a frog had wings he wouldn't bump his ass so much uh, when he's when he's going to buy the girls and he's talking to talking to the uh, I guess pimp and he's like you goddamn butternut muff diver um, there's just there's just a ton of like <laughs> I little... got girls up here that'll do more tricks than a goddamn monkey on a hundred yards of grapevine <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's uh, there's just a lot of I mean he just he just goes off on a tear. And, um, I would, I would be curious to know, I, I haven't in, in my little bit of research that I did, I didn't come across anything, um, that, that said either way, but with it being an Altman film, it stands to reason that that's certainly a possibility. And, and if it, if that is something that he brought to it, he consistently nailed it. The other thing I, so Altman, when I think Altman, I think, you know, a big crowd all talking at once, or uh-huh. I don't think of, um, what, well, and now I might, but I don't think, you know, McCabe going through the snow, uh, being chased. It's sort of like nothing is going, nothing is being said. And it's, it's amazing. Right. And at the same time, this town's all working together to fight this fire Mm -hmm. and they're coming together and they're, they're, you know, working towards positive ends while he's just being stalked and it's cutting back and forth. The editing's fantastic it's that's that's pretty much perfect you said it right pretty much perfect yeah no exactly i i love i absolutely love how he's dealing with because it's just like the silence and a little bit of wind when and, and it's the it's the isolation of mccabe 
you know, he's, he's tried to dig out his little niche and he thought, you know, he's become a, a property owner and he's done all the right things to be this businessman that he wants to be. Uh, but at the end of the day, he, he, because he's, you know, maybe not the, the right class of person and maybe not the right educated person. Um, he, he's left out, you know, alone in the wilderness and cutting between that and first, um, you know, first he, he's going around in the snow and you cut to, uh, sort of the, the guys that are looking. And I must say like 70 zooms sometimes get on, on my nerves. There is an amazing one when it zooms in on Smalley and his two cronies, like mm-hmm. from, I think, I think it's from the, the steeple maybe, uh, like zoom straight in on them. And then they're, they're going around looking for him. Amazing. Just 70 zoom on some bad dudes. Um, but the, first, the, it, the zoom lens was definitely used, utilized, often. utilized a lot. Yes. Um, but yeah, the uh, so it's cutting between him and, you know, in, in the snow, in the silence and then them looking for him and in often sort of like the the Chinatown area where um, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of the immigrants who, who are coming, and there's just like a lot of commotion, a lot of ruckus. And then you have um, once the, the church fire breaks out, then you have cutting between him quietly hiding or, or moving around. And then the commotion of that fire and just that juxtaposition is so good. And so like it, it it also sort of is poetic in that the whole town is rallying to save this church that no one even uses. Like it's a, it is a empty building. It is a shell of a church um, just filled with junk. Uh, But they are, they're rallying to save that while this guy who, you know, for all intents and purposes, really helped to develop this mining town into what it is, is just off fighting his own battle and dying in the snow. And I, I, maybe I'm getting a little schmaltzy, but I love that poetry in this film. It, it was really great. Uh, I didn't expect it from this film. I, I don't know why. I don't know what I expected. All I had really known about it was the cover with him in the mm-hmm. big coat. Yeah, that cover's great. It that, is. One, of, one of my favorite Criterion box covers. Yes. For sure. And I, I didn't expect this like cold, isolated northern town that I, it, it was it was really good. Yeah. I mean, selling it as a Western, it, it is a Western, but it's not it's not your typical Western. But it's also it's also not trying to subvert the Western. It's just trying to tell a different Western tale. And I love that. So, Chris, if our listeners are against drinking poultry products, uh-huh. and they, but they want to have an adult beverage when they sit down to watch McCabe and Mrs. Miller, uh, what would you suggest? Okay, so my my second suggestion for this double feature, um, it's it's a beer that technically I've recommended before, uh, but it is a year, yearly release, so I'm using that as uh, sort of my, my caveat, I guess. Um, it's Backwoods Bastard the 2016 variety from Founders Brewing Company in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, this is a beer that's only available uh, in November. You can generally still find it in a liquor store into December. So look for it. Um, it's a Scotch ale, which means uh, it's a little higher in alcohol content. This this is clocking in at this year's is 11.2% ABV. So pretty heavy. We heavy. The raw egg is optional with this beer. I would probably <laughs> recommend that you don't. Um, have a raw egg with it, but it is actually cave aged in oak bourbon barrels. So you can get a little bit of your uh, double whiskey in there. It's sweet. It's boozy. I actually aged one from last year for a year and just had it the other night. And that like oaky boozy bite really hit hard, uh, which if you're into that sort of thing, you could also do that with, with a bottle or two of these, buy it, keep it in the fridge, back the fridge for a year and then um, pull it out, taste test it, compare it to the new year's. 
uh, version. But uh, I think this will pair really well. I mean, McCabe himself is a bit of a backwards bastard. So that's uh, Backwards Bastard from Founders Brewing Company. McCabe and Mrs. Miller is available to rent or purchase from many impeccable purveyors of digital motion pictures. You can also find it as a recently released Criterion Collection Blu-ray. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, once again, we would still love to hear from you. Ring that bright red telephone and leave us a voicemail at 484-4-CINEMA. Stick around for our really rad recommendations, coming up next. I really can't stay. Baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. But baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been so very nice. Well, I'll hold your hands there just like ice. Beautiful, what's your hurry? Listen to my fireplace roar. Your mother needs to worry. Put some records on while I pour. Baby, it's so bad out there. No cabs to be had out there. Your eyes are like starlight now. Well, I'll take your hat. Your hair looks swell. What's the sense in hurting my pride? Baby, don't hold out. Oh, but it's cold outside. All right, Jake, it is really rad recommendation time once again. What Warren Beatty classic do you have to recommend for us this time? Uh, None Warren Beatty classics. None? I, 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 I didn't want to recommend Bonnie and Clyde, which is my personal favorite, because I assume everyone's seen it. Um, whatever you do, don't sell that cow. Um, if, and if you don't get that joke, go and watch it. Uh, no, I, I was going to recommend the HBO series Westworld. Nice. Um, I, I, I want everybody to, to come out and to circle cinema and see the, the old one, but really you should be watching this one. And if you want me to tie it into the movies, uh, that we reviewed today, uh, Rules Don't Apply had Ed Harris in it, who plays a fantastic role as the man in black in Westworld. Yeah, Ed Harris is probably my favorite part of Westworld, actually, and was from the very beginning. Yeah, I, I want to talk a lot more about Westworld, but this is a show that you should avoid spoilers at all costs. It's like the you should follow Game of Thrones rule. Don't even type a name of the character into the Google search bar or it might autocomplete a spoiler. I'd, I'd like to go a step further than that and say maybe even and at this point. If you've avoided stuff up till now, you're probably pretty good and you can probably try to binge if you want. But I would say even avoid fan theories. Oh, um, yes. For this one. You you, you want to just just put it on and hit play and watch it. Mm-hmm. So for, for something that I can talk about, I did bring another recommendation. Uh, it's mostly a recommendation for Chris. Um, and that is, uh, hey, Chris, hey, are you Jake. finally going to watch Gross Point Blank? Ah, uh, I don't, I don't know, man. John Cusack makes me itchy. Oh God! Well, you, you should, you. Should, I tell you what, if you ever go to your mailbox and you find a, a Blu-ray that got shipped in from eBay, uh, because somebody has decided you can use the make an offer button on less than great <laughs> movies to just have them appear at other people's doorsteps. Jake, Jake, what have you done? Oh yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so we we have another segment in the works uh, with 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 Drew reviewing a bad movie, and I realize that I can just lowball people on eBay, and when they're bad Blu-rays, they'll just they'll just go, yeah, sure, I'll take two dollars for it. So I've been throwing out random numbers, like two seventy one is what I like to to pay for bad Blu-rays, and I don't think Gross Point Blank's bad. I really like it, but it's not in like high demand. I don't know yeah, when the Criterion release is coming out. So, I think it's I think it's behind the uh, Blu-ray reissues of The Rock and uh, and uh, Armageddon. <laughs> I don't know why it's behind those, but <laughs> so I went and got this, and uh, it's gonna show up at your doorstep, Chris. Wonderful. I I mean, with that pressure, I probably actually will finally sit down and watch it. Yeah. Um, you, hey, uh, Liz might like it too. You just throw it on. You you two can. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Could, and I think I think this is also streaming on Netflix. So this was a something you didn't even have to do, but. Like, like I said, the pressure of it being purchased, even if it was for two dollars and seventy one cents. Look, you've probably uh, got hundreds of movies in your queue of shame on net, or your, your my list or whatever on net Netflix. You uh-huh. probably only have a certain number of Blu-rays that you haven't watched. That, that's two of true. them are the Italian Criterion Collection films that I either recommended or bought for you. Those, those are actually sitting on top of my Blu-rays right now in my must-watch these before I sort them alphabetically list. Okay. Yeah, uh, and mine right now is is the only two I have are uh, Jackie Brown and the Alien uh, mm-hmm. anthology. Hey, where'd, where'd where'd you get those, Jake? Oh, they showed up at my doorstep, but I didn't order them. <laughs> Wonder how they showed yeah. up. Uh, Merry Christmas, yeah. you filthy animal! One, one day this podcast is just going to turn into we review movies that we send each other. Yeah, well, and and we very intentionally send each other for Christmas this year some uh, war crimes that we felt the other should definitely definitely see the the ebay thing actually inspired me i think our april april fool's review this year we should give each other you know three bucks uh-huh. to go on um ebay and buy a movie that is at least ten dollars so you have to lowball a movie and then the down lowball low it down to ten dollars no no like a movie that is at least ten dollars as a list price you have to convince someone to sell it to you for less than three dollars ship it to the other person <laughs> and then we review them on a really bad uh, movie review episode for April Fools. What if Jake? What if I can find like Sallow and and lowball him down? Oh, uh, I would have I would have to review it, but I'm hoping I can find something like Max Steel, which <laughs> is too new, so it's going to have to be older and awful. <sighs> Gosh, I don't even I'm, know. This is going to be fun. I don't know I how this is going to work out, but I'm actually really excited about this. I think it's going to be fun. Okay. All right, well, that is my, like, 15 recommendations. But really, <laughs> Westworld is available on HBO. Gross Point Blank is available to stream on Netflix or at any lowball eBay buy-it-now option. Okay, my recommendation this week um, does involve Warren Beatty, and it's once again another really weird movie that Warren Beatty directed and stars in. Uh, it's Dick Tracy from 1990. This is, guys, this is a really, really weird movie. Um, it's got Al Pacino in a lot of face makeup. Uh, it stars, it also stars Warren Beatty, uh, the kid from Hook and What About Bob, Madonna. Mandy Patinkin's in this movie. Seymour Cassell's in this movie. Um, it's based on, you know, the the really old uh, detective uh, serialized comic strip um, about, you know, a detective who has like a cool gadget watch. And, and I, honestly, I, I feel like part of this was because I remember, you know, I was about what, three or four years old when this movie came out. And I remember really, really 
loving just the style of it, the aesthetic of it and the gadgetry of it. Like his, his little watch that he could talk into. That was a, an intercom. I, I partially feel like it was just like the studio was like, yeah, we can make toys out of this. Sure. And does it have the, the feel of like a Burton Batman? Cause in my head, that's what it, it that's what it, you, you know what it feels like. It, it kind of has the feel of a Burton Batman. If Burton Batman had characters that looked like live action, lazy town, puppets like because all no all the bad guys have these really weird prosthetics on their face and it's and it's a very like vibrantly colored colorful movie so it's it's playing around as like this detective film noir thing but like uh al pacino is always wearing these like bright red suits and there's other other mobsters in like bright green suits and um this is honestly this is probably the first thing that I ever saw, you know, an introduction to the genre of film noir and, uh, having revisited it as an adult, I now realize that like a lot of the things that I associate with, with the genre, um, were either only done here or were done really poorly here. Hmm. And, and, and then later, or, and, and then later in viewing, I discovered, you know, more of what it was trying to mimic. Um, that sort of thing. It's a, it's an oddity. It's, um, not necessarily a great film. I don't think Madonna is a great actress by any means. She's, Hey, don't, don't go saying controversial stuff on the show, Chris. (laughs) Um, but it's, yeah, it's got, it's packed with a bunch of, uh, a mix of stars and then faces, uh, recognizable faces. So sort of like rules don't apply. And I don't know, like, I don't know if Warren Beatty just likes directing the weirdest possible films or, or, or what his deal is, but yeah, uh, Dick Tracy, it's, uh, I, I have a bit of a hard time recommending that you rent this film because I, I don't want to upsell, but, um, it is available to rent or buy on, you know, general places you, you rent and buy, buy films. Um, if, if you happen to see it on like TNT on a Saturday afternoon, uh, watch it, enjoy it. It's got, uh, you know, like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, it's got very vibrant, um, set design and <laughs> costuming, but in a, in a very, it's, it's the opposite direction. Um, hmm. it's weird. I think it pairs well with, with our discussions here tonight. All right. And that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, fantasy movie league recaps, and more. Or say hello on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, rate and subscribe to it in iTunes or wherever you get the podcast. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. The Spoiler Alert theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash The Taylor Machine. And shout out to Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors for the featured music on this week's show. Find out more at drewholcomb.com. Join us in another fortnight for our review of the first in a soon-to-be infinite line of Star Wars saga films, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. And don't forget to join Hunter and me at Circle Cinema for Westworld on January 13th and 14th. Tickets are on sale now. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening, folks. I want banana nut ice cream!
Mrs. Miller coming up next, gonna drink me an egg. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I run a brothel, and sometimes I get shot in the leg. <laughs>